And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the, well, it's The Real Investment Show. And of course, we're getting ready to wrap up the month of April already. Month is flying by. Of course, this is earnings season. And uh, of course, this week, another big week of earnings. Uh, this week and next week, roughly 88% of all the S&P 500 stocks will report. So lots of stuff to be driving the markets this week in terms of earnings. We'll be hearing from some of the big major companies this week. That will certainly uh, kind of give us an outlook now about <clears throat> where we are um, in terms of earnings. Are they bottoming here? Are they starting to trough here a bit, starting to improve? Um, well, you know, guidance is very important as we've been talking about. So that outlook of what they say about the rest of this year is going to be critical to really where the markets go to next. A couple of interesting data points last week, though, S&P Global, both manufacturing and services indexes have both risen now uh, back into expansionary territory. So this is kind of an interesting take. You know, lots of views that the economy is going to slow down a lot this year. We're going to have a recession. One of the things that we've talked about on the show is, you know, because of all this monetary liquidity that we injected into the markets back in 2020, 2021, which created a massive surge in economic activity, that has been coming back off and, and GDP has been declining, but hasn't gone negative yet because it was such a big gap from where we had growth peak and where we've got to get back to being negative. So again, lots of time that it takes to revert that trend of growth to negative growth in order to get that recessionary you know, kind of outcome that, that we're talking about. But again, the way the economy works, of course, over time is that as people contract from spending, et cetera, well, they don't buy as much and eventually they run out of stuff, right? I mean, just generally you just get to kind of a point where, well, you know, I've put this off, I've put this off, I've put this off. Now I've got to go buy it. And so you do tend to get these little spurts of activity, even in a slowing economic environment. But the one question that we've got to keep a watch on is when will the economic activity actually trough and begin to improve? Now, it's way early to say that the recent bounce in economic data is, is, is evidence of a troughing of this kind of downturn in the economy. But we have been in a fairly long stretch of economic contraction. Now, not recession yet, but definitely contracting in economic activity, a fairly long stretch. And again, not surprising here, you're seeing a little bit of a bounce, but that's going to give a little bit of lift to economic outlooks. Uh, forecasts for GDP obviously being ratcheted up here a bit uh, from basically zero growth up to about 1% growth for 2023. Uh, much stronger growth estimates though for 2024 as we get into next year, people expecting kind of this, this, this slow down recessionary drag to be behind us by the time we get to that point. So um, nonetheless, that's what, you know, a couple of things have been, you know, helping support the markets. One has, of course, been earnings beating drastically lowered estimates, but now we are, we're starting to see those estimates get ratcheted up for 2024. Expectations are with this recovery in economic growth that we're also going to see a recovery in earnings through the end of next year. Of course, that's what stocks have been pricing in here uh, for the last several weeks. And, and, and again, this is kind of where we're starting to hear from companies now 
talking about what their outlook is. Do they expect stronger outlooks? Do they expect stronger consumption, et cetera? And that's going to be a key driver to markets here over the next couple of months in particular. Now, tomorrow, we've got an article coming out of the website kind of talking about where we are in the markets right now. And again, you know, back in February, uh, around February the 10th, we wrote an article saying, hey, uh, the correction has likely started. And that was where we had this correction into March. And, and around March the 15th, we wrote an article saying, hey, look, the correction is probably over here. Um, we're now going to get a rally towards 4,200 on the S&P. Well, we got to 4,168. Didn't quite get to 4,200. We got close, but not quite, not, not quite there. Uh, but we did kind of peak here right around 4168. Mark has been declining here for the last three, four days, just really kind of choppy around last week. We didn't really make a lot of movement one direction or the other. Uh, market was mildly negative, but, but essentially flat. Um, this morning, we're going to open down a little bit on the Dow, the S&P, a little bit weaker, but again, you know, very slightly. So, you know, everybody's really kind of just focused on earnings and what these earnings are going to look like. But there is a good bit of support here right below where markets are trading. Uh, the 20-day moving average is sitting at 4,070. So, again, not a lot of downside before you hit a first level of support. And, of course, you've got the 50-day moving average, uh, the 200-day, the 100-day moving average is all kind of clustered in here right around 4,000. So, uh, again, there's not a tremendous amount of downside in markets potentially right now, but we've likely seen the peak for this rally. The MACD signal, our buy signal that really kind of has been driving our asset allocation changes over the last several, well, over the last year or so, um, have, have been working fairly well. We're just about to register a sell signal on that MACD. Also, another reason why we're just saying, hey, you know, this is probably a good time to take some profits off the table. Last week, we sold our index trading positions uh, to close out the week just because, again, we've had a very nice rally here taking some profits there, just raising a little bit of cash. Doesn't mean the markets are going to have a big decline, but a, a bit of sloppy trading here over the next couple of weeks wouldn't be surprising at this point. And then we're about to get into the summer months. Uh, summer months tend to be a little bit weaker just from a seasonal perspective. There's, there's a lot of reasons why summer months tend to trade weaker on average. Now, does that mean every period of summer is, is, is poor? No, uh, obviously not. 2020. Um, after we started injecting the economy with $120 billion a month in QE, stocks did very well in the summer months of 2020. Uh, they did well in 2021. 2022, much different story. Uh, big decline in uh, 2022 summer months. So, so again, it, you know, it doesn't mean that every year is going to be negative, but on average, in most years over time, you're better off kind of reducing exposure during summer months. That's where you tend to get more volatility out of markets. And for some reason, I don't know why the month of October is a magnet, but all of your major crashes throughout history, 1929, 1987, 2008, all occurred in October. So again, just you know, getting through May, that May through October period tends to be a little bit weaker for investors. So, uh, so again, you know, with markets going into that period, overbought and extended, probably not a lot of upside left to the markets right now. So again, one of the reasons we're just suggesting maybe taking a little bit of profit here um, and just kind of repositioning yourself uh, kind of for the summer months. Now, this morning, I want to talk about the Fair Housing Act of 1968 just a little bit because of lots of headlines on Thursday, Friday last week of this new rule passed down by the Biden administration that will now penalize homeowners. And we touched on this a little bit last week, but 
it will penalize homeowners for having good credit and making a down payment when buying a house. And it will credit those with poor credit scores and no down payment to help them buy properties. Now we'll talk about the ramifications of that and, and what that means as we start kind of, you know, kind of reviewing these things that we have done very similarly in the past in this idea of trying to help people buy houses, which has not always turned out well. But anyway, we'll get into that right after the break and what that has to do with the Fair Housing Act of 1968. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Get by the website. Our latest newsletter is out talking about that rolling recession that we talked about last week. That's in the newsletter this weekend, along with all the contingent market statistics, graphs, stock screens, and more. It's all there at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back after the break. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th, with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So this morning, and so uh, last week we touched on this new rule passed down by the Biden administration that will penalize homeowners for having good credit and making a down payment. And we touched on it last week, but man, I just got slammed by emails over the weekend, you know, talking about, you know, what this means and, you know, potentially what happens. And so, you know, a couple of things that, you know, kind of jumped out, you know, from this. And, and again, just once you kind of start thinking through what this rule means. And so let me just back up here just just real quick and, and just touch on kind of what this rule is. So what the Biden administration is proposing is a rule that will penalize borrowers. So if you put a 20 percent down payment on your house and you have good credit, and you go to get your mortgage, there will now be an additional 1% fee on your mortgage um, because you have good credit and put a down payment. Now, that's it. I mean, you're just so whatever your mortgage rate is, just essentially add 1% to it. So, in a, a mortgage of $400,000, as an example, it'd add about 40 bucks a month, right, to your mortgage. If you have poor credit below 680 and aren't putting any money down on the house, then you will get a subsidy and a lower rate to get you into a home. Now, 
We've done this before in different forms. From 2005 to 2007-ish, really 2008-ish, we were passing all kinds of rules and, and modifying regulations to get people into houses that, that they wanted, right? So we were we come up, we, we started modifying down payment requirements required by the FHA and, and by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And we started changing the rules and we started modifying demands. And so we started coming up with things called like the ninja loans, no income, no job, right? So you, we had loans for individuals of, of all typical types around around the country to to get homes. And I've, I've told you the story before. I'd flown out to um, Palm Beach in California um, for a conference, and my taxi driver at that time, this was 2006-ish, picked me up at the airport to take me to this conference and was talking about he had just bought a $2 million house in California. This guy's driving a cab. Now, nothing wrong with that, but you go, okay, you're driving a cab and you bought a $2 million house. That's pretty amazing. Uh, then there's also all kinds of stories. And, and, and really, this, this was a lot of, of stories that had come out of California at the time. People were basically using their houses as an ATM. They would buy the house. The houses were appreciating so rapidly in price that they would just keep, you know, the, the house would go up $200,000 over a month and they just extract the capital and just kept refinancing their houses over and over again, taking out the excess equity from their houses. Of course, you know, eventually, 2008 came along, right? And and what we what we discovered back then was that people that have poor credit and could not save up a down payment for a house, they made poor home owners because they couldn't afford them. So they couldn't, not only could they not make the payments, but they couldn't keep up with the maintenance, the upkeep, et cetera. So, you know, it was just a variety of, of problems with getting people into houses that they couldn't afford. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. This, this isn't about saying that, that people with poor credit are bad people. It's not that. It's just they've got poor financial habits. And before you sell them a home, and again, as we've talked about on the show before, it's not just buying the home. If, if you could just buy your house and then that was it, fine. But it's not just the mortgage payment. It's the upkeep. It's the taxes. It's everything else that goes along with home ownership that becomes burdensome that you don't have when you're renting. See, we have this idea in the country for some reason that being a renter is bad. If you rent, that's bad. You need to own. Well, of course, ownership is being driven by the banks, the mortgage companies, the home builders, the realtors, all the people that want to sell you those products, right? And these are big, big lobbies. So not surprisingly, now that we have a downturn in home ownership and people are, are not wanting to buy a house because mortgage rates are now 6 7%, whatever they are today, it's not surprising that we're now seeing a push by these big lobby groups to try to figure out how to sell more homes to people who really can't afford them. And so that's the juxtaposition of this rule, right? We'll take it. It's, it's the Robin Hood rule. We'll take it from the rich to give it to the poor. Here's the problem with it. Just my view. And I would 
I've been reaching out to attorneys over the weekend. I haven't got a response yet because it was the weekend. And apparently attorneys don't work on the weekend like I do. <laughs> but I should, have, I should have a response today or tomorrow. I'll, I'll have to update you. Uh, the 1968 Fair Housing Act, which ironically was passed in 1968, um, prohibited discrimination. And I'll just read to you the definition. The, the 1968 Act expanded on previous sets of, of act, or previous acts and prohibited discrimination against seven distinct classes, right? So you couldn't, you couldn't discriminate on the sale, rental, or financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, sex, and as amended, eventually handicapped and family status. Title VII of the Act, also known as the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing about this. Now, the question I've, I've posed out to attorneys, and again, I'd like a legal, legal response on this, and, and I'm sure that somebody will probably eventually sue on this ground, is that technically you're discriminating against people for having good credit. Now, again... If I can't discriminate against Brent for buying to buy a home or to rent a piece of property because of his sex, his religion, his uh, you know orientation, whatever it is, right? Then how can I discriminate against him for having good credit? Now. I, I, I don't, again, I don't have the legal answer on this, and that's why I'm waiting. I'm not an attorney, but it would seem to me that you are now discriminating against a class of individuals for having good credit and impeding them on buying houses. Well, you can say, okay, well, Lance, yeah, but you know, it, it's a little different because you're you're impeding. You know, if you don't want to make a loan to people that have poor credit, you know then, you know, that's discriminating against him. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Anybody can get a loan. You just have to qualify for it. Even rich people have to qualify for it. And I, I go to make a loan, you know, for my house or whatever it is. I have to qualify, right? I've got to have right income. I've got to, I've got to meet certain standards in order to get that. And, and those standards are the same for everyone. You've got to have an X credit score, you've got to have X income, you've got to have Y, you know, whatever it is to qualify for the mortgage, right? And the banks go through the, you know, this whole run, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and everybody else, they go through this whole rundown of, of things you've got to qualify for, and they're the same for everyone. So whether you're white, black, brown, yellow, green, purple, blue, male, female, six other genders, whatever it is, as long as you qualify, that, that none of those things matter, as long as you hit these benchmarks. But here's the question. We're now changing that where we're saying, well, if you qualify at this benchmark, that's fine. But now there's a penalty. Well, that penalty may prohibit me from buying a home because it makes it too expensive. It makes my monthly payment too expensive. So how is that not discrimination under the Fair Housing Act of 1968? I think this will be I think this is where it'll get challenged ultimately and we'll see but set that aside for a moment. We've done this before people. 
we did this back in 2005 and six and seven. We gave people mortgages that couldn't qualify for them. We changed the rules to help them qualify for mortgages. And we got them into houses. After it all fell apart, and we figured out that people with poor credit and no down payments, A, didn't care about the house, right? I've got no skin in the... See, here's the problem with this, right? If you get me into a house where I have no skin in the game, I don't care about the property. So what if I lose it? Right? Who cares? I didn't lose anything, right? I didn't put any money down on the house. I just paid a monthly payment. I basically rented the house. I really didn't own it. I just rented it because I had nothing into it. And so when times get tough, I walk it. What do I care? I've already got crappy credit, so it doesn't matter if I've got you know, another default on my issue, on my credit. I don't care. I didn't have good credit to start with. It, it, obviously, my credit didn't matter to begin with, so I don't care about it now. So what we found out in 2006 and 7 is that, you know, slamming people in the houses they couldn't afford didn't work out well. Now we're going to do the same thing. We're going to incentivize those that same group of people that don't care about their credit or their financial well-being enough to do something about it into buying a home they really can't afford. Now, I don't think it takes a giant leap of intelligence to figure out how this eventually ends. You're right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so as i started out in the show this morning talking about you know this week is obviously another big week of earnings this week we've got apple meta Facebook. Can we just go back and call it Facebook? Uh, Microsoft, you know, all reporting this week. So it's going to be a very heavy week in big S&P 500 companies. Today, we've got Google, uh, Chipotle Mexican Grill, the most expensive burrito on the planet from a market capitalization standpoint. Uh, General Electric, General Motors, Juniper Networks, didn't even know they were still around. Uh, McDonald's, Microsoft, Pepsi, Raytheon Technologies, uh, Spotify, Texas Instruments, UPS, Verizon Visa 3M. So heavy day today. This is what I, this is what I meant earlier. This week and next week are going to be very critical to the markets in terms of look. These companies are all going to beat estimates, right? We, we've lowered estimates so much that these companies are going to beat those estimates. The question is, as I said before, is not only do they beat the estimates, but what is their guidance? Do they say things are starting to look like they're, you know, kind of bottoming out and, and things are getting better? 
You know, is this earning trough we've been in, is that now kind of going to be behind us? Or do things still look troubling? Right. That's that's the big question. Right. You know, everybody's convinced right now that we're going to have a, an, another big, you know, we've got a recession coming. That's a, a given fact. If you talk to most of the analysts and economists out there, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Recession's coming. Got to have it. Well, you know, the problem is, is it's the world's most predictive recession in history. We've, you know, we never predict recessions with any accuracy. And, and usually, historically speaking, nobody expects a recession until after the fact. Even going into 2008, the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, going, oh, it's a Goldilocks economy. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Of course, a year later, we found out we were in a pretty bad recession. So the question really becomes is that now, with everybody expecting a recession, has, or should say have, the markets now adjusted for that expectation, right? Have consumers adjusted for that expectation? Because that's how, that's how markets work, right? It's all about psychology. If I tell everybody that a recession is happening, they go out and they constrict spending and stop doing everything they're doing, and it creates the recession, right? You get that slowdown. Once they get to the point to where they've contracted all they can contract, they're going to start spending again. And that's when you come out of the recession. That's how it works. So the question is, is has the contraction in economic activity over the last year been enough that they can now start spending again and we start getting some a pickup in economic activity? And, and like I said, the S&P Global Manufacturing and Services Indexes have both turned up into expansionary territory. That's just, that's just one indicator. Well, two indicators, technically. Leading economic indicators are still weak. A variety of other indicators are very weak, not showing any turn yet. But this is the point, is that if we start seeing these other indicators showing signs of improvement, we may be able to start sniffing out the bottom of the economic downturn. Is it here yet? Who knows? Is it coming? Eventually, yes. Absolutely. One of the things that we do poorly as individuals is that we assume that a trend in anything, whether it's rising prices, falling prices, rising economic activity, falling economic activity, it's a one-way ticket. We just assume it's just going to go in that direction indefinitely. And we do this worse when we're in a downturn because then we just say, well, the economy's never going to get better. We're going into the world's deepest depression. Things are never going to get better. This is, this is the end game. It's the end of the world, et cetera. And it's usually not. Things are never as bad as we think they're going to be. Things are never as good as we hope they're going to be. And this is why it's always important to kind of manage that middle, kind of understand kind of where the playing field lies and play that environment. But this is the challenge that we face currently because, again, we don't know where we are within this economic cycle. You talk to some people, we're in the third inning. You talk to other people, you're in the eighth inning. Personally, I'm at the football game. I have no idea where we are in what inning, <laughs> right? That's what we do is we have to try to figure this out. What we do know is that we've got a lot of negative sentiment in the markets, a tremendous amount of negative sentiment. You have everybody expecting a recession. 
it is a widely held view we are going to have a recession. Question is, is have we had it yet? Right? And you go, well, Lance, we can't have had it yet because we haven't had negative growth. Well, we also haven't revised our growth rates, right, on the annual revisions to know what those growth rates really were. Again, I don't know. Neither do you, nor does anybody else. But this is why we have to pay attention to this data and say, well, what is happening? Now, again, these surveys, S&P Global surveys, ISM, Philly Fed, you know, New York Empire Index, et cetera, these are surveys. And they're sentiment-based surveys. And so you've got to take them with a little bit of grain of salt because of the way that they're surveyed and how these surveys are built. Here's an example. Brent owns a manufacturing company. I call Brent up in January and say, Brent, how many new orders have you had this month? Brent's like, zero. No new orders. I call Brent up in February and I say, Brent, how are you doing on new orders? Brent says, not only have I not had any new orders, I lost four customers. So I've had negative new orders. I call Brent up in March. Brent. How are your new orders? Oh, it's just terrible. Nothing's getting better. I called Brent up in April. Now, remember what I told you about economic activity is, is that there's a point to where people just run out of stuff, right? So Brent sells a widget to his customers. His customers had stockpiled a bunch of widgets in 2022 in 2021, because of the whole supply chain shutdown, they were worried the fact that they might not be able to get widgets from Brent because he didn't have the commodities to put them together to sell them. So they bought some extra. And they were keeping them in inventory. So in January, February, and March, they were still selling off some of that excess inventory. But now they're running out of widgets. So I'll call Brent up in April. In April, uh, Brent's very happy. He says, I sold a widget. One. Well, if I go from zero widgets to one widget, that's a 100% increase in sales, right? Brent's very excited. He sold a widget, one widget. Not the 50 he normally sells in a month. He sold one. So that registers on the sentiment survey is like, oh, there was an improvement in new orders. It doesn't tell you how much. It just says there was an improvement. Now, what we need to see, though, is a consistency of trend of those improvements. So, you know, if, if, if that one widget that Brent sold refilled the inventory of his customers, they're not going to order anymore next month. And so I'm going to call Brent up in May and say, Brent, how's your new order? He's like, terrible. And they're back to none. <laughs> right? Sentiment turns back down again. Or if I call him up in, in uh, May and he says, oh, I sold another one widget. It's the same as it was last month. But it's better than it was over the preceding three months, so the sentiment improves. So this is important to understand is how these sentiment gauges work. It's not a measure of activity. It's a measure of sentimental change. Do I feel better about my new order situation or do I feel worse? Am I feeling like the environment is improving or do I feel like it's getting worse? Those are the sentiment bases behind these surveys. And so that's why it's important to combine these sentiment surveys with hard data surveys. How many widgets were actually sold? 
How many used cars were sold last month? How many new cars were sold last month? Housing is a problem when you look at the data. You've got to be very careful with housing data because housing data is a really good example of manipulation. If I sell one new house in January, it's considered that I sold 12 because it's annualized for the entire year. So when you look at new home sales, existing home sales, et cetera, it, those headline numbers are not how many houses were actually bought or sold. It is the annualized sale of those houses. If I sold 100 houses in January, it was reported as 1,200. And so when you start breaking these down, you start looking nationwide and you go, wow, there was only one house sold last month. I'm not I'm making this number up. There was only one house sold last month. But it's reported as 12. So it looks like the activity is a lot better than it actually was. So it's important to understand what's behind these numbers as well as just the headline numbers themselves. So just, you know, no, my point is this, is that don't take numbers just at their headline face value to make an assumption about the markets or the economy. It's important to understand, A, what's behind the number, but it's also, B, important what is driving that number. Is it a hard data number or is it a sentiment-based number? And sentiment can change very quickly. But all this is going to be weighing back into the markets here over the next several months, particularly as we get into summer. The impact of those lag effects, those rate hikes, continue to weigh on economic activity and, more importantly, earnings. But are we going to see sentiment beginning to improve from these very low levels? That's going to be the big question. Okay, we'll be right back after the break. Wrap up the show. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. So I've got a article. I've been promising this article now for, I guess, the last month or two. And I keep writing other articles in front of like, this article is more important because it's more timely. And so I've been putting this one off and, and it's, it's time has come. It's Friday. Um, I will be publishing an article called uh, talking about conviction and the problems of being convicted to an idea or a thesis or a premise and not evaluating options for what they are. And so just this morning, I'm going to be including, I had to, I needed to tweet something out this morning so I could get a bunch of arguments um, so that I could then include them in the article on Friday. So there was a really great chart out this morning by uh, Deutsche Bank. 
this chart is just simply a chart of the return of a total return of stocks versus gold going back 35 years. And so what the, the premise of the article is, is that it's okay to be convicted to an idea. Just don't be convicted to an idea that has a flaw in its analysis. The reason that we invest dollars is to have them adjust for the purchasing power parity over time of our savings. And so if you ever notice, there's always somebody hawking this idea that you should own gold. And it's generally somebody that's trying to sell you a product of gold of some, some sort or another. So they have a vested interest in selling you something. But the idea is, is that, well, if I own gold, it's going to protect me against, you know, economic downturns and, you know, inflation and, and all this. And gold will replace that inflation adjustment issue relative to my dollar. And it's not that that didn't happen last year. Gold performed very poorly relative to um, inflation. And over the last 35 years, what is clear is that you're much better off investing your savings in the financial markets, even with bear markets, than you were investing in gold. Now, does this mean you shouldn't own any gold? That's up to you. If you want to own some gold, that's fine. The point of the conversation, though, is, is are you doing the best thing with your money over time? Because remember, all we have to work with at the end of the day is our savings. And our savings have to adjust for the purchasing power parity of our future standard of living. So I need something that adjusts those savings over time to reach that goal. A million dollars today is not what a million dollars were back in 1980, right? A million dollars back in 1980 would sustain your lifestyle very well. Today it won't because of inflation. And so if I invested the same dollars in gold or stocks back in 1980, I've done much better and sustaining my lifestyle today in stocks than I did versus gold. Now, there's a lot of headlines coming out right now, and is, you know, central banks are buying gold at the fastest pace that we've seen in the last 30 years, whatever. Why are they buying gold? Well, they're buying gold because the dollar is declining in value, right? We just had, we had a huge bull market in, 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 in dollars previously. And now that excess run up in the dollar is being reversed as, as it always happens. The value of anything ebbs and flows in one direction or another. So when something gets really overbought on one side, everybody piles into the US dollar as a safe haven because it was strengthening. As it weakens, they take money out of the US reserve. Now, I've got to now as we've talked about before, if I take money out of the reserve currency, and it's my reserve, so, so Brent, Brent is France because, well, he's Brent, right? So he's France. So Brent says, okay, I've got a bunch of my money <laughs> in the dollar. So... Um, He's Pepe Le Pew now. Um, so, you know, Brent says, I've got all this money in the dollar. The dollar's declining. So I've got, I've got all my reserves in the U.S. dollar. I've got them in T-bills. And the, the value of the dollar is declining. So that means that I'm losing purchasing power parity of that reserve currency because the value of the dollar is falling relative to the French franc. Now, 
I don't want to bring those dollars back into France. Because if I do that, it'll make the situation worse. It'll make the French franc even stronger relative to the dollar. And that hurts trade. So what do I do with it? I buy gold with it. Because there is a historical correlation that when the dollar falls in value, commodity prices go up. Gold is a commodity. Gold, oil, wheat, copper, corn, whatever. Commodities rise when the dollar falls. Because why? The dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Everybody purchases commodities in the dollar. And so when the dollar is falling in value, you put, that, you put those reserves into gold, which should rise in value as the dollar falls. So I still have my reserve currency stored in the New York Fed. I haven't converted it back into French francs. I just converted it from UST bills into gold until such time that the dollar begins to rise again, then I will convert it back. So just because central banks are buying gold doesn't mean the world is coming to an end, which is often the headlines. So the point is, 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 is this, is that being convicted to some idea that just because we've got inflation right now or because we have the dollar going down in value or, what, or we have economic weakness, which is also why the dollar is falling in value because there's a correlation there, that you should go shove all your money into gold because gold is a replacement for money, and it's not. I heard this a lot, too. Well, gold is money. Gold is not money. Gold is gold. Gold is a commodity. The reason it's not money is because you can no longer barter with it. Back in the early 1900s, gold miners would go to California, right? And they would mine gold out of the, the, the gold mines in California. And at that point in time, they would go into town with their bag of gold. And they would go to the bank. And the bank would give them dollars for their gold. And there was a one-to-one -one exchange on that because we were in a gold-backed currency system. So now I've got a paper, rather than lugging down, or, you know, lugging around town a hundred-pound bag of gold nuggets, I could lug around, you know, a wallet full of paper money that represented the gold that I had just converted at the bank. But if I had a gold nugget, I could walk into the bar and I could buy myself drinks, dinner, a room for the night, and, and a local prostitute for that gold nugget. Right? And then I go back to my mine the next day and I'd start mining again. But because there was a dollar-for-dollar dollar exchange, gold was money then. Today, now I always throw this challenge out. Today, Go take your gold coin and go into Starbucks and try to buy a cup of coffee, right? Somebody's going to do this one day, and I'm going to get an email. It's like, well, he took, he gave me a cup of coffee and took my gold coin. Well, if a barista is smart enough to understand that that gold coin is worth a whole lot more <laughs> than the cup of coffee, hell yeah, he's going to trade you out for it. But he can't give you change, right? You walk in with your gold maple leaf coin, say, I want to buy a cup of coffee. Here's my gold maple leaf coin. He's going to look at you and go, great, I'll give you the cup of coffee, but I'm keeping the whole coin. So you just bought a $1,500 cup of co uh, coffee. But 
or $2,000 cup of coffee, depending on how, how many ounces of gold that is. But he can't give you change for it. And because he can't convert that gold into a, a, a purchase and give you change for it, it is not money. It is not currency. Got a call over this weekend talking about this very same thing. Lance, you know, the dollar, de, you know, de-dollarization, the world's coming to an end. We're all about to wind up in World War III, maybe. So should we have gold as, you know, just in case we go back on a barter system? Sure. I own some gold. Everybody, you know, owns a little bit of gold. Nothing wrong with it. And if we wind up into a barter system, gold's not going to matter. I buy a lot more lead than I buy gold. Because if we wind up into a barter system, nothing else is going to matter. There's, it, you better have lead. If you don't have lead, you're going to lose your gold pretty quickly. There'll be another gold rush in California. <laughs> People are going out to get gold from uh, non-armed houses. But the point is, is make sure that because you own a commodity, and that's what it is, it's a commodity. It pays no income, has no dividend, has no fundamentals. Understand why you own the commodity. There's nothing wrong with it, right? Nothing wrong with owning it. But just be careful of the theses that are thrown out that, you know, this is going to matter for one reason or another. Just make sure that the person giving you these theses aren't also trying to sell you the product. Make sure you're buying it for the right reasons. And make sure that you understand what's going to give you the best return over time and both protecting your capital and adjusting that capital for the purchasing power parity you need to meet your retirement goals in the future. All right, that wraps up the show for today. We'll have that article out on Friday on Conviction. Um, it'll be on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, our latest newsletter is out. And of course, we've got a lot of stuff going on this week. So again, stay tuned every day right here for The Real Investment Show. We'll see you next time.